second reading is from Daniel 11. Uh, We're looking at verses 20 to 35. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Thank you very much, Royston. On the 10th of November, in 1793 the revolutionaries in France held a feast of reason in the cathedral of Notre-Dame in the middle of Paris. They summarily beheaded the statues of 17 biblical kings who adorned the west front of the cathedral. They replaced images of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which had adorned altars in the cathedral, with statues representing Lady Liberty, an amalgam of various pagan deities. And they rewrote the Christian liturgy of the cathedral into a liturgy for the cult of reason that had set up after the revolution. They improvised a little mound in the middle of the nave of the cathedral and put up a little uh, mock Greek temple on the top of the mound. And they surrounded the mound with busts of 
Greek thinkers, indicating the triumph of human philosophy over divine revelation. Essentially, they rebuilt Babel, rejecting the idea of God revealing himself in that place and instead building up their own wisdom. The crowd processed in from the streets of Paris and paid homage to an opera singer dressed in the tricolor colors, red, white, and blue, representing the goddess of liberty, a goddess who, as it happens, has been presiding in New York Harbor since 1886 at the gift of the French state. The abuse of Notre Dame on that day, over 200 years ago, was deliberately shocking. It was the spiritual heart of the French nation, the biggest church in the biggest city in the country. And it was being used by revolutionary cults who, while worshipping reason, were busy applying the guillotine to 17,000 of their own countrymen, many simply for the crime of being born into the wrong social order. An event so shocking, it turns the opinion even of radicals across Europe against the revolution. Now, it's interesting that uh, even in 2019, when that fire ripped through Notre Dame uh, in the early hours of the morning, there was still a shocked reaction at the desecration of that place of worship. 900 million euros donated on the first day of the appeal to rebuild it. We still care so many centuries later, so much about our places of worship. But how much more did Israel care, the nation of Israel care, about the temple in Jerusalem? The horror of that day, 10th of November, 1793, is magnified a hundred times and more in the year 167 BC, when the abomination that causes desolation was set up in the temple of Jerusalem. As we read in verse 31, which is the climax in many ways of that passage, his armed forces, as the armed forces um, of the emperor of Babylon, will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. This is referring to as I say, 167 BC, when Antiochus IV, the emperor of Babylon, got rid of the images and uh, devices of worship for God in the temple and replaced them with an idol of Zeus, the king of the Greek pantheon, and sacrificed the most unclean of animals before it, the pig, and covered the temple mount in pig's blood. That was the low point of all of Old Covenant, Old Testament worship. Worse than the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines in the time of Eli. Worse than the plunder of the temple by Pharaoh Shishak in 926 BC. Worse than the stripping of the temple by Ahaz to provide gold to uh, Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor, in 740 BC. Worse even than the demolition of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC at the start of the exile. Antiochus IV was pioneering in desecrating the temple of God. A complete reversal, not just a neutralization of what that place of worship was set up for, uh, stopping what was meant to be happening there, but a complete reversal, a turning around of what was meant to happen, an inversion, an ungodly inversion, setting up the idol of Zeus and worshipping him with pig's blood. So bad, because under the old covenants, the temple 
was the center of God's interactions, both with the Jewish nation and with uh, humanity as a whole. His eyes, he said, were ever on that place, and yet Antiochus IV desecrated it. If that desecration had been without warning at all in all of biblical prophecy, then that might have rocked the Israelites' faith. It might have caused them to question who God was. And therefore, we do have this prophecy that did warn them ahead of time that that shocking event, that most shocking event, so much more shocking than anything that could happen to a church today, was going to happen. Daniel had been prepared Uh, You may remember those of you who were here for the earlier part of the series in chapter eight uh, of this for this prophecy. He'd been given an outline back in chapter eight that this was going to happen in the vision of the horned goat, uh, which Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, had then come to explain to him. And Daniel had been appalled, we read at the end of chapter eight, by the extremity of what he saw in that vision. But a more detailed revelation was needed than the outline given in chapter eight. And hence, we have the long prophecy in chapters 10 to 12 at the end of this book, which Simon explained last week is the longest of the prophecies in Daniel. So chapter 10, we had the psyching up. Daniel had been appalled in chapter 8 by what he'd seen, what had been revealed to him. So he needed some real encouragement to accept and to see this vision he was now being shown in more detail. So chapter 10 was the psyching up. Uh, Chapter 11, which we're looking at tonight, is the detail, the content, the meat of the revelation of what's going to happen to the Israelite people. And then chapter 12, the conclusion. It wasn't just 167 AD that mattered. That was a a single event, but it happened in a thick context of history. And so this chapter, chapter 11, which we've only got a few verses of on our sheets, uh, was actually quite a long chapter, about 50 verses, uh, includes lots of detail leading up to that shocking event. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Antiochus IV didn't simply turn up to the temple one day and suddenly desecrate it. That was coming in the context of a series of wars known as the Syrian Wars. Syria was the major battlefield between two great empires of the ancient world, two successors to the globe-spanning empire of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt and the Seleucid Kingdom of Babylon. No sooner than Alexander the Great had died at the young age of 33 in 323 BC than his generals were at each other's throats trying to win over the rest of his empire. Four of them emerged as the Diodoci, the successors to Alexander, Seleucid uh, in Babylon, Ptolemy in Egypt, Antigonus in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, and Cassander in Macedon and Greece, the heartland of Alexander's empire. And they all fought each other uh, for glory and honor in the wake of their leader's death. And the two greatest of those successor states, the inheritors to the two cradles of civilization in Egypt and Mesopotamia, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires, they had the greatest battle against each other. And that formed the Syrian wars, the six Syrian wars that occurred down from the death of Alexander to the point at which the Roman Empire took over all of that territory and became the dominant power in the world. The six Syrian wars drains the power of Egypt and of Babylon. And it's that that's prophesied about throughout Daniel chapter 11. Now, there's a claim that has been repeated throughout uh, biblical criticism, especially of the last hundred or so years, that this chapter is far too detailed to be prophecy. It must have been written after the event because there's so much in it that just lines up perfectly with what actually happened. 
But the thing is, prophecy can be detailed, and other prophecies in the Bible are detailed. So, for example, Jeremiah prophesied that it would be 70 years that the people of Israel would be in exile in Babylon. Likewise, Ezekiel prophesied in detail, nation by nation, what would happen to nations that ignored God. And the whole point of detailed prophecy is it showing that God is in control of the little details of what's going on. He is the God of the big picture, but he's also the God of the small details. He works all things, not just some things, to his own glory and to the good of those who love him. And this brings us to the point of why this prophecy actually matters for us as Christians today. Daniel 11 is a rarely considered part of the Bible. Often we stop at chapter 6. That's where the good Sunday school stories end. The second half of the book is much less familiar to us. Why does it matter to us as 21st century Christians that a Jewish exile in the 6th century BC, 2,558 years ago, received a vision about what was going to happen to his people 300 years later, which was still 2,200 years ago for us. Why does that matter to us? Well, here's three reasons why I think it probably does matter that we read and think about and meditate on this prophecy still today, a couple of which I've alluded to already. Firstly, it shows God's kingship. Secondly, it shows God's compassion. And thirdly, it shows God's right worship. So firstly, the vision of the abomination that causes desolation matters because it shows God's kingship. Let me just review what exactly chapter 11 sets out. It details the number of kings in Persia from Darius, when Daniel received the vision, down to Xerxes the Great, Xerxes' Greek campaign in 480 BC, the rise of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC, the division of Alexander's realm into four, the service of Seleucus I in Ptolemy's army, and then his subsequent um, seizure of Babylon, the marriage alliance to end the Second Syrian War between Babylon and Egypt, the resulting journey of Berenice of Egypt to wed Antiochus II, her assassination by Laodicea of Babylon, Ptolemy III's seizure of Antioch, his redemption of the Egyptian artifacts stolen by Cambyses of Babylon 300 years earlier in 524 BC, which was still 12 years after Daniel received the vision, Antiochus III's seizure of Raphia in 219 BC, the Egyptian fortress, and of Banias in 198 BC, a site which actually yours truly visited back in 2018, which is a fascinating historical site to visit. The marriage alliance in 195 BC that ended the Fifth Syrian War and led to Cleopatra of Cyrus' wedding. And in verse 20, we can start following now from the, the bit we've got on the sheet. He details the coup of Heliodorus in Babylon in 175 BC. In verse 21, he details the rise of Antiochus IV in the same year, the contemptible person. Verse 22, the defeat of Egypt in the Sixth Syrian War by an overwhelming army. In verse 23, Antiochus' agreement with Ptolemy IV, his prisoner, to restore him to the throne of Egypt. Down in verse 27, the breakdown of that agreement, the two kings having their hearts bent on evil. Verse 28, the start of the persecution of the Jews as Antiochus tried to Hellenize his empire in the face of pressure from Rome. 
in verse 30, the intervention of the Roman Republic on the side of Egypt, referred to here as the Western Coastlands, and Antiochus's famous repulsion by Gaius Pophius Linus, the Roman senator. And then in verse 31, which we've already noticed, the desecration of the temple, and so on and so on. Historical event after historical event. Um, there's a whole second half of the chapter I haven't run through. All of the events, it's worth saying, that I've mentioned there, are attested to outside of the Bible. So Roman historians like Livy, in his Ad Urbe Condita, detail all of the, these events that happened from the Roman perspective. Uh, Greek historians like Polybius of Megalopolis in his histories details these events. But Daniel saw these events not as history looking back, but as prophecy looking forward. God was in charge of all of these events. He was king. He is king. He plans them eons before they ever happened. And he showed them to Daniel ahead of time. And likewise, all of the events that happen in our world today, two and a half thousand and more years later, are planned still minutely in detail by God. A viral variant in Wuhan, a global pandemic, the expansion of NATO, an invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, the British exit from the European Union, and whatever's next, and on and on. He is the God of the big picture, but he's also the God of the small details, even down to individual decisions made by you and me on a day-by-day basis. As Jesus said, even the hairs of our heads are numbered. Nothing takes God by surprise. Everything has been decreed by him. Which is reassuring, because we know that everything works together for our good who love him. And it's all the more reason to come to him if we don't consider ourselves Christians today. You might not know him, but he knows you perfectly. God's kingship. Secondly, the vision of abomination of desolation is important because it shows God's compassion. As I mentioned earlier, it was an extremely traumatic event for Israel to see Antiochus IV desecrate the temple, much worse than anything that could happen to Notre Dame or to St. Paul's or any other cathedral in modern Europe. So extreme, it would have rocked their faith and questioned their belief in God, if not for the prophecy of Daniel 11. God allowed this evil to happen, but he warns the people in advance that it would because of his compassion. The abomination that causes desolation was a necessary part of his plans for the world to bring about good in the end through Christ, but he shepherded the people through it because that was necessary for his compassion. Soon after Daniel's prophecy, there was a period of prophetic silence, 400 years from Malachi down to John the Baptist, when there were no prophets. But the people could always follow the events that were happening during that period, the intertestamental period, because they could see the events being spoken of through Daniel. And they could know that God is still in in control and God does still care for us. Who knows, maybe that reassurance 
was in fact what encouraged the Maccabean rebels that we read about in verse 33 of our reading and the end of 32. Um, The people who know their God will firmly resist him, Antiochus. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And that Maccabean revolt is detailed more in more detail in the four books of Maccabees, uh, which are in the Apocrypha. Still today, just as then, there is going to be no fundamental change in the way God interacts with his people, interacts with the world in the way that he asks us to worship him without him saying so, without him compassionately sharing that with us. God has promised, as we know, no more global catastrophes like the great flood and he's given us the sign of the rainbow as his promise of that and he's also promised not to change gospel truths we can rely on them we're given that comfort because of his compassion we are his sheep and he guides us by his sure word thirdly finally the vision of the abomination that causes desolation shows god's right worship I mentioned earlier that Antiochus IV was pioneering in the extent he went to in the desecration of the temple, not just ripping it apart, not just pulling it down, unique in his desecration, in his false worship there. However, there was another pagan ruler who did the same thing. Antiochus was pioneering, but he wasn't unique because 240 years later, along came Titus, Not a Greek this time, but a Roman, a Roman who had later become emperor, who besieged Jerusalem for two years, and like Antiochus, set up an abomination that causes desolation. And just as Daniel warned of what Antiochus would do well in advance, so likewise Jesus warned of what Titus would do in the days before his crucifixion, when his disciples were marveling at the great stones of the temple, He warned them, look out for the abomination that causes desolation, using that language, echoing Daniel 11. And when you see it, let those in Judea flee to the hills. Thus, he tried to protect the early church from being completely annihilated by Titus, by giving them the sign to watch out for and just run and hide themselves. God allowed the abomination that causes desolation because the time of that first covenant, that first testament, was coming to an end. A new covenant was, of course, inaugurated by Jesus and fulfilled, certainly, when that second abomination was completed 240 years later. Because of what Jesus did, there is no more need for an earthly temple or an earthly priesthood or an earthly sacrifice or an earthly ritual. All of these things are kept in heaven for us. A perfect, better temple, a perfect, better sacrifice, a perfect, better priesthood, a perfect, better ritual. Old covenant worship in the temple was genuine interaction with God, decreed by him. But its time came. All of those rituals read about in Leviticus, and we're trying to do our uh, annual Bible read-through, they were genuine, and they were necessary at the time, but they've now been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And that sign of the abomination that causes desolation is a full stop 
at the end of Old Covenant worship. So, to conclude, these later visions of the book of Daniel, mad imaginations of an aged prophet at the end of his life, dusty history dressed up as prophecy by a crooked and deceitful scribe. No, genuine, detailed revelation of what would happen to God's people, reminding us of his kingship, his compassion, and his right worship. Let's thank God in prayer. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for giving understanding to Daniel, your servant. Indeed, you are a revealer of mysteries. We thank you for that same spirit of revelation given to us who humble ourselves before you and seek your truth in sincerity of heart. We praise you as almighty king, supreme in sovereignty, as good shepherd who keeps us wayward sheep, and as faithful high priest forever in the heavens. Refine and purify us as you did for your people before. In Jesus' name, amen.